Good morning, everyone. Good morning. We are back on a Sunday morning. It's a little overcast, but that helps us to be able to see just a little more clearly, right? We're glad, we're glad that it's not raining. And we are grateful to be here this morning. Amen. Amen. So we're going to open up this morning, just giving glory to God and just worshiping him for who he is, because there is nobody greater than God. Nobody greater. Jesus is our king. Jesus is our friend. And there's nobody greater than Jesus. So think about those loved ones that you've been in search of the challenges that you faced and the triumphant joys that you've endured because it's all because of Jesus. I climbed up to the highest mountain looked all around couldn't find nobody Went down to the deepest valley Looked all around down there Couldn't find nobody I went across the deep blue sea Couldn't find one to compare To your grace, your love, your mercy Nobody greater, nobody greater than you Searched all over, couldn't find nobody. I looked high and low, still couldn't find nobody. Nobody greater, nobody greater, nobody greater than you. I searched all over. Couldn't find nobody I looked high and low Still couldn't find nobody Nobody greater Nobody greater Nobody greater than you Nobody can heal Like you can Oh, most holy one, you are the great I am. Awesome in all your ways, and mighty is your hand. You were he who carried out redemption's plan. You are he who carried out redemption's plan. I searched all over. Couldn't find nobody I looked high and low Still couldn't find nobody 
Nobody greater Nobody greater Nobody greater than you I searched all over Couldn't find nobody I looked high and low Still couldn't find nobody Nobody greater Nobody greater Nobody greater than you Nobody greater Nobody greater Nobody greater than you Nobody greater Nobody greater Nobody greater than you him to the side left him out of our lives but still he loves us still he loves us 
when we fall, when we falter, when we forget about him, he still loves us, still loves us unconditionally. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us because there's nobody, there's nobody greater than you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen, Sister Melanie. Thank you for that. And some of you may be thinking, oh my goodness, we're getting into the preached word awfully quickly here. But uh, we do have one more song for praise and worship. But I wanted to say a few things before we got into that song because I really want us to listen to the words of the song. Uh, I believe that uh, this, uh, you know, the praise and worship is, it focuses our attention. It begins to break up the fallow ground sometimes of our hearts, especially depending on what kind of week we've had, right? We can come in with a lot of things on our mind. And sometimes, if, if we're not careful, uh, we, we won't let the praise and worship do the work that it's intended to do so that then when the word comes forward, our hearts have been broken up, the ground has been uh, loosened up so that now the the seed of the word can be planted, and not just planted, but then it can take root, and not just take root, but then it can produce fruit. Amen? So this next song that is about to play is a song by an artist by the name of Anthony Evans, uh, and it's called Forgive Me. Uh, Again, uh, don't, don't, don't be afraid to lose yourself in praise and worship. Even though we're outside, even though this isn't the traditional kind of scene, even though there's not a choir here, we don't have the orchestra, the band playing for us, but for a moment, if you can just see just yourself in the presence of God, entering into his presence with praise and worship, giving him a praise and a worship that only you can give him because only you know what he has done for you, And then let the words of this song, again, seep into you and prepare our hearts to hear from the Lord. Amen? Amen. Mike, if you would. For the way I thought too much of myself for the way I've been trusting in my flesh for the way I've not come to you with tears and brokenness for the way that I have made you the way I've not noticed you at all. My pride and my fear that I won't let me surrender
God, we come into your presence recognizing, acknowledging that we are nothing without the cross. There is no eloquence, no education, no personality, no characteristic, nothing that we bring to the table other than Jesus Christ crucified for our sins. God, I pray that you would push away the noise, that you would push away the obstacles, not just from the things we may have experienced this week, not just the ups and downs, the ebbs and flows, the tough situations, maybe even the valley experiences we may be going through, but specifically because of this message that you have given me, that you would push away our pride, our ego, our self-importance, our selfishness, 
and you would allow us to see ourselves through the lens of Scripture, not just as the individuals that you have made us, but as the collective body of Christ that you have called us to be. God, as always, I do not ask for your help to preach this message. I ask you to preach this message. You gave it to me. You preach it, God. And then you do with it what only you can do, and that is to make sure it does not return to you void, but that it accomplishes everything for which you sent it forth. Let it break through the noise. Let it tear down strongholds. Let it encourage where encouragement is needed. Let it convict where a conviction is needed. Let us not leave here the same as we came in. And not because it's cliche, not because it's the right thing to say in church, but we will be careful to give you all the praise and all the glory because there is none greater. Because you are God. And you deserve all of our praise, all of our worship all of our attention. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I <clears throat> love that song. I, I found it uh, when I was going through a period of time uh, when I was laid off and wasn't sure what God was doing in my life. And that album uh, is, a, is a blessed album. It holds a special place in my heart. But even more so, that particular song um, does something to me as well. And uh, just by way of a little bit of an introduction here, I, I do want us to understand that the, the, the aim for today is that the church would realize that how we respond to our own sin has a direct impact on how others respond to God. Let me say that again, that how the church responds to its own sin has a direct impact on how others respond to God. I've got a couple of verses that I'm going to be pulling from. The first one is uh, from Romans 2 and 24, uh, where Paul writes, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And then we're going to switch over and flip over into the Old Testament to Psalm 51, and we're going to be looking at three verses out of that chapter, 4, 10, and 17. Verse 4 says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Verse 10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Verse 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So this, this message has been, has been hard for me to kind of pull together, and not because I couldn't understand what God was saying. It was more because I, I understood very clearly what God was saying. And, and for anybody who is preaching and teaching, you know that before, or at least you, you should know, that before you can even stand and declare what thus saith the Lord, um, you have to let what he is saying to you wash over you. The word has to deal with you before then you can turn and then share it with others. And, and so this word has been dealing with me for a while. But I, I do want to tell you kind of what kicked it off. And this is an interesting kind of a series of events 
uh, as oftentimes, and you guys know, I, I, I share often that I have some really, really good conversations with my two daughters now who are, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, young adults. One is 17, about to be 18 in a couple of months. One is 15, about to be 16 in a couple of months. And uh, even driving, sitting in the, the car that they came in on their own. And so uh, we were having some conversations just about some things happening in the world. And the content of it is not as important as it is the statement that was made at the very end. As we were talking through these things, and, and I was explaining, and I've often said to them that sometimes people reject what they think the Word of God says without knowing exactly what the Word of God says. And we were walking through this particular issue that we were discussing, and, and my oldest said something to the effect of, she said, hmm, well, the church needs to do a better job. And I couldn't do anything but agree. I said, yeah, the church needs to do a better job. A better job of what? A better job of representing what God is like, a better job of representing what it means to be in the body of Christ, a better job of representing what the Word says about all sorts of things. And then later on, I happened to have a conversation with my mom, and we were just talking in general about everything that's going on in the world and how we're wanting the world to respond to God in a way that they can't because they don't have the relationship with God. We're wanting to see things in the world that in some cases we don't even see in the church, but we're still expecting, we're still wanting, we're still condemning the world because they aren't responding to God like someone who actually has a relationship with God should respond. And as we were kind of talking through that, the Lord brought to mind this scripture Romans 2 and 24, when Paul says that, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, I've got some people who have been praying for me because I've shared with them that this is a tough message for me to preach, but I also just want to share with you that this is not me preaching at anyone. As I said, I have been broken by this message. Actually, the title of the message is that we must be broken. We must be broken. As I have been working on this, the Lord has been working on me and shining a light on my own life, on my own prayers, on my own habits, my own behaviors. And so this is not me standing in judgment as much as me just sharing what the Lord has shared with me. And so as we move through this, again, that's why I was praying. I I pray that we would be able to set aside pride. We would be able to set aside ego. We would be able to set aside um, all of those kind of defenses that we put up because because of what we're hearing doesn't make us feel good. We all know as humans, we have a way of trying to find something in it that then allows me to dismiss all of it. Resist that urge. Let the word of God wash over you. The other thing too, and this is something that I will reiterate as we move through here, this word is not for anybody but who is here. 
As I'm going through this, do not be thinking to yourself, boy, I wish my fill in the blank was here to hear this. Because then you're getting the focus off of where God would have it to be. The only one who is here who can respond to this word is you in the moment that you hear it. And so for us to get lost in, man, this would have been a good message for my husband, for my wife, for my kids, for my father, for my parents, for my neighbor, whatever that is, push that out. Trust that God has here who needs to be here to hear what it is that he has to say. So I didn't hear any engines start up. I didn't see anybody pull out, so I'm going to keep going, and, uh, and we will see what the Lord will do. So let's get right on into this. So, um, in Romans 2 and 24, Paul is writing to the church in Rome. And I think these are things that we know, but I like to rehearse these things just to be sure. And, and when he writes this letter to the church in Rome, he's actually writing to combat two schools of thoughts that were undermining the gospel at the time. They were undermining the notion that justification through Christ came by faith alone. One of these groups were called the Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers, they accepted that salvation by God came through uh, Jesus as the Messiah, right? But they also held that in order to maintain that salvation, you had to still observe the law. You still had to observe dietary constraints and traditions and rituals. And the Judaizers insisted that you had to be circumcised in order for your salvation to take hold. Then on the other hand, you had another group called the Antinomians. And the Antinomians, they also accepted that salvation was by God's grace through Jesus. But they reasoned that, hey, since salvation came by God's grace and I didn't do anything to earn it, then that means I can't do anything to lose it, which means I can just continue to live any way that I want to. I can continue to live in sin and indulge my own desires. And so Paul actually, right, he puts pen to paper, proverbial pen to paper, and he writes this letter to the Romans to deconstruct the arguments from both perspectives. If you've never read, this is just a aside, if you've never read Romans all the way through, uh, you, you really should. I mean, Rome, Paul does such an excellent job of really just kind of putting up arguments and then knocking them down, right? He, he, he's almost debating with himself, taking on the voice of some of these individuals in these different camps. And then he's using, right, Old Testament scriptures. He's using uh, interactions that uh, people have had that he takes the, some heroes from the Old Testament and he uses them to show how this, this righteousness through faith alone is not something new that has been invented, but has actually been there from the very beginning. So you would avail yourself. It would, you would not be disappointed if you spent some time reading Romans. And he, 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 he deconstructs these arguments, right? And, and really just to present the true gospel, taking time to knock these down. But in chapter two, right? And specifically, uh, Paul seems to be addressing the Judaizers. Remember, those who were probably Jewish believers originally who had come to believe in Jesus as the Christ, and they were still holding on to the law to secure their salvation. Now, I do want to make sure that I make a distinction here because what I don't want you to think you hear me saying is, is that um, observing God's commandments isn't necessary. The, the distinction that the Judaizers were making is, is that you is that how how well you keep the law is what is actually securing your salvation. 
and not realizing that it's not about how well you keep the law that has saved you. It's the fact that Christ has died for you that has saved you. And then in response to his sacrifice, we now walk according to God's commands, right? But they were getting that thing out of order saying, yeah, Christ died on the cross, but it wasn't enough. I now need to do this extra stuff to make sure that his death it stays, it keeps me, it holds me, it secures me in salvation. And specifically in verse 24, right, Paul makes a very interesting statement when he says that it is because of them that the Gentiles, and you can read that as the nations or as unbelievers, those who do not know God, blaspheme the name of God. And blaspheme is one of those church terms, right, that we've heard a lot and even made joke, you know, oh, that's blasphemy. But it means, right, if you kind of unpack it a little bit, it means to speak evil of, to revile, to rail against or at, to vilify or to defame. Now, this is an interesting juxtaposition. Those who hold God's law in such high esteem are the ones who cause those who don't hold God's law in high esteem to then speak evil of God, to revile God, to rally at God, to vilify and to defame God. And some of us, right, we might be tempted to conclude, well, that's a natural consequence, right, of believers living in a fallen world. Because uh, as, as believers live out the precepts of God, and as we live in obedience to his commands and his will, then it's, it's, it can be expected, it's natural to expect that those who don't recognize the kingship and the rule of God would then be offended by us. And then they would speak evil of, they would revile, they would rail, rail against, they would vilify, they would defame the name of God. After all, Jesus himself said that the world would hate us because it first hated him. But look, that's really just a cute little explanation and a rationalization of this verse uh, that uh, really takes it out of context, and it makes us feel good about ourselves. But this is not an accommodation. Paul is not congratulating this group. He's not giving them a feather in their cap. He's not saying that these people are walking so righteously that it's causing those who aren't walking in righteousness to push back but instead, what Paul is doing is he's making an indictment. How do we know that he's making an indictment? Well, first, Paul is using an Old Testament reference, uh, which it means that in this statement, right, when he uses this Old Testament reference, it means that this statement that he's using has a pre-existing context already, a pre-existing context that the Jewish listeners would have understood but it may not be as obvious to us today. So in your Bibles, if you're looking, if you have your kind of your page Bibles, and even if you've got a digital version, there may be some type of little superscript or subscript that is referencing some other verses, some Old Testament verses. And these are some verses that reader, or that uh, uh, the translators of the Bible and are saying that, hey, look, Based on what Paul is saying here, he could be referring to these Old Testament verses, right? This is where this same idea, these same words, this same notion and principle shows up in the Old Testament. <clears throat> and if your Bible is kind of like mine, it, it lists out two different verses. One is Isaiah 52 and 5. The other is Ezekiel 36 and 20. Now, these are, are, are 
These are Bible uh, books that we don't often wade into, right? The Old Testament in general, and then you get talking about Ezekiel. We, we may go to Isaiah around Christmas time so we can hear about the government shall be on his shoulders and you shall call his name wonderful and all those kinds of things, but we don't spend a lot of time in Ezekiel. But uh, these two books are rich with the nature of who God is and how he responds to his people and how he responds to sin and the promises that he has for his people, those who are called by his name. So if we look at these quickly, Isaiah 52 and 5 says this, Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers well, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Ezekiel 36 and 20, you'll find these words, but when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, and that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. I'm adding in 21 just to add a little bit more context here, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Hmm. Both of these verses, the one in Isaiah and the one in Ezekiel, have a context that's rooted in the nation of Israel, God's chosen people not being the kind of example before other nations that God had intended them to be, and then them facing the consequences of that failure. Think about it. God chose to reveal himself to this nation of people. He entered into a covenant relationship with them. He gave them his precepts for holy and right living. He walked with them. He protected them. He guided them. He gave them their own land. And what did they do? Ezekiel 36 and 17 tells us that God says that they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. And this is the reference, think about it now, that Paul reaches into the Old Testament, brings forth into this letter to make a statement about the ways and the deeds of the believers in the church in Rome. But what is the charge? What is it that Paul is highlighting here? Well, if we go back earlier in the chapter in verses 3, 4, and 5, we actually see three issues that Paul lays out, and we're going to walk through them here fairly quickly. In verse 3, first, he points out that these believers are hypocrites. Now, that is a, a, a charge that has long been levied against the church, that it's full of hypocrites, when he says in verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now, in chapter 1, Paul goes through great lengths to describe what the such things are, the such things that these folks are judging others for, as he describes, right, in chapter 1, man's sinfulness since the beginning of time, leading up to all sorts of manifestations of ungodliness and unrighteousness, things like idolatry and sexual perversion and immorality, wickedness, greed, envy, murder, strife malice, gossiping, lying, being arrogant, being boastful, and even being disobedient to parents. And the issue here isn't that these things, that these behaviors aren't wrong, 
But the issue is, is that these believers were going around telling others about the judgment awaiting them for practicing these things, all the while they were doing the same things. Secondly, in verse 4, Paul points out that their hypocrisy is mixed with either arrogance, ignorance, or both. When he says in verse 5, or verse 4 rather, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Paul says that, look, it is bad enough that you are condemning others for things that you yourself do also. But then on top of that, you're either ignorant enough to believe that God is only going to judge the others for doing those things and not hold you accountable for the same sin that is in your life, or you're naive enough to believe that because nothing has happened to you yet, that God is somehow okay with what you're doing and with how you're living. Not realizing that consequences delayed is not God's approval, but it's his mercy. It's giving you an opportunity to repent before he steps in. And I think that it is also important for us to make a distinction here because I I know how some of you may be thinking, and that's not me being arrogant. I know how some of you think because I think the same way. And we might be tempted, right, to look at the list of sins and do one of two things. All the things that Paul lists out, we could look at that, and we might look at it and, and do one of two things. We might force rank them and say, well, you know what, rationalizing in our minds how uh, the sins that we're guilty on the list are lesser sins than some of these other sins. These are greater sins. And so these are the ones that are really bad. And these other ones, well, the Lord knows my heart and he's still working with me and, and, and by and by and I'll get there. Right. Or what we may do is look at the list, read through what Paul lists out and then wipe our brow because the sin that we're guilty of isn't on the list. And we feel like it doesn't apply to us. Hmm. Can I help us out, Joe, a little bit with that thinking? <clears throat> and I know that sometimes when you listen to what's happening in the world and how some people who are in the church and represent the church talk, it doesn't seem like this. But this is a very simple statement. <clears throat> sin is sin is sin. There are no big sins. There are no little sins. Now, don't get me wrong. There are big consequences to sin and some little consequences to sin. But if I'm not mistaken, death's, uh, or rather Christ's death on the cross forgave me of all of my sins, which means that any one of my sins was enough to keep me separated from God. So, Thirdly, in verse 5, Paul lets them know that they've got a heart problem. When he says, but because of your hard and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And now we actually get to the crux of the matter, where Paul gives the reason for why they are hypocritical for why they arrogantly presume upon what God will and won't do to them. 
It is not for a lack of knowledge or understanding. It is not because someone didn't teach them correctly, but it's because they have a hard and unrepentant heart. But what does that mean? What does it mean to have a hard and unrepentant heart? Well, uh, it means, right, that, 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 well, first I say, before I get into what it means, first we have to understand that when the Bible talks about a heart, what is it talking about? It's referring to the part in all of us that is the source of our thoughts, of our passions, of our desires, of our appetites, of our affections, of our endeavors. And so to have a hard heart is another way of saying that someone is stubborn to the point that they are not willing to change their thoughts, their passions, their desires, their appetites, their affections, or their endeavors. Regardless, no matter what, no no matter what information you present to them, no matter what uh, rationale you give to them, they have a stubbornness about them. And unrepentant, right, means that they are unwilling to admit that what they are doing is wrong or what they have done is wrong. They are unwilling to admit that they need to make a change. So if we put all of this together, Paul is saying, right, in verse 24, to these believers in Rome, that those who don't know God are left with no other choice but to speak evil of, to revile, to rail against, to vilify, and to defame the name of God when they see you, who claim to know God, declare and pronounce upon the world the wages of sin, but refuse to acknowledge and refuse to turn away from your own sinful thoughts, your own sinful passions, your own sinful desires, your own sinful appetites, sinful affections, and endeavors. And in 2020... We stand here scratching our heads, wondering why there is no reverence for the name of God. We wonder why God is mocked. We wonder why God's word is scoffed at. We wonder why his precepts are dismissed. We wonder why the church has been marginalized. And again, we might be tempted to provide a cute little explanation that makes the church, that's you and me, makes us feel better about ourselves. That maybe, uh, you know, that, that, that something like the world is, is sinful anyway and it, would, it, it doesn't know God and it couldn't respond to God or that the world wants God out of everything anyway and this is just the natural ending and the natural outflowing of that. But I assert that the diagnosis that Paul issued over 2,000 years ago is still the condition that plagues the church today. And that is that we refuse to be broken by our sin. The same hypocrisy and arrogance is still present in the church today. It's present in me today. Robbing the God of the universe, the honor, the glory, the reverence that he rightly deserves. A refusal to be broken by sin. A refusal to yield our thoughts and our passions and our desires, our appetites, our affections, our endeavors to the lordship of Christ. This hardens hearts. 
This creates unrepentance. This symptom that Paul addressed over 2,000 years ago is just as alive in the church as it is in the world. So the question, of course, is if our hearts are hard, how can they be made soft? And then how do we keep them from becoming hardened to the point of unrepentance? And I think that Psalm 51, this is the psalm that David writes after being confronted by the prophet Nathan regarding his sin with Bathsheba. I believe Psalm 51 gives us some really practical insights. And so if you would turn there with me. And first, we're going to see that in verse 4, there is a recognition of who God is. David says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And here David is communicating that God is supreme. You know, it's interesting, and and I I didn't really share this with Sister Terrell, but when she sang the song, Nobody Greater, just thinking about the words, the song is easy to sing. Nobody greater. Nobody greater, Jesus, nobody greater than you. The tune is catchy. But do our lives reflect that I believe there is nobody greater? Or is it nobody greater, Jesus, unless something happens at work and I need to respond and protect myself? Nobody greater, Jesus, unless my friends start to shun me and then maybe I need to lay down some of your commandments. Nobody greater, Jesus, until it begins to rub against my own will and my own desires of what it is I want in my life. Nobody greater than you. And I believe what David is letting us know here is that he sees that God is supreme. David isn't broken because he has violated some social norm. He's not broken because he has violated the ethical code of his organization. He's not broken because folks on social media are boycotting him and trying to get him canceled. But he is broken because he has sinned against God. He has violated the command of the holy, righteous God that created everything. He's acknowledging that what is right or wrong in the eyes of man, including his own eyes, has no bearing on what God has established as being right. Some people see the commands of God as suggestions or at least as up for debate. And I'm not talking about just outside of the church. See, it becomes easy for us to maintain hard hearts when we either begin to provide loopholes, out clauses, workarounds to negate the things that God has clearly commanded, or we focus on and elevate certain sins and minimize other sins. When I can justify, when I can rationalize how God's word doesn't apply to either what I'm doing or it doesn't apply to how I'm doing what I'm doing or it doesn't apply to who I'm doing what I'm doing with, then I don't even see it as sin anymore. 
And it's no wonder that I'm not broken by it because I've rationalized it out of my mind as even being sin. Next in verse 10, David goes on to ask God to create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David also recognizes, in addition to recognizing that God is supreme, David recognizes that the adultery that he committed with Bathsheba and the arranged killing of her husband wasn't just a mistake. It wasn't just an exercise in bad judgment. Uh, it, it wasn't uh, just that, that he, he made a boo-boo or that he, he had a lapse in judgment. But he understood that it was an outward manifestation, an outflowing, if you will, of what was at his core. Namely, to do what he wants to do, no matter what he, the cost is. By calling out to God, David is acknowledging that what needs to be changed about him, he, David, is powerless to change himself. He recognizes that God will have to change his heart, that God will have to create something that doesn't currently exist, that God will have to intervene, God will have to interrupt, God will have to, will have to intrude, he will have to bring about the change and the renewal. Similarly, similarly, if we approach sin as just it being a misstep, if we approach sin as us just having taken our eyes off the ball for a moment or as the devil messing with us, again, all these phrases and these terms, right, that are real cute and, and real churchy, uh, but it makes it easier for us, then it is no wonder that we aren't broken by our sin. Instead, we should be like David when we sin. It should be a constant reminder that there is another nature inside of me that is warring against the new nature that Christ has created in me. It should be a constant reminder of what Christ did for me on the cross. It should be a constant reminder of my need to be transformed daily. It should be a constant reminder of the grace and the mercy that God showed to me, not just on a hill called Calvary, but every single day of my life from that moment until now. It should be a constant reminder of the loving kindness, of the patience and the compassion that God God extends to me every day, every hour, every minute, every second, even though I take him for granted, even though I give him lip service, even though I'm sometimey with him, he just keeps on keeping me. Lastly, in verse 17, David says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Now, right before this, I didn't give you this verse, but right before this, David says that God does not delight in sacrifices and is not pleased with burnt offerings. And this notion, right, it seems at odds with the temple practices that were contemporary to David's day and age, which were built upon sacrifices and burnt offerings. But what David is tapping into here by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that God is not satisfied 
nor is he impressed with these outward rituals that don't indicate any inward change. A God that can see into the very heart of man could care less about these things you do to impress other men. Now, when we look back through the lens of Scripture, we know this to be true because the temple sacrifices, right? They didn't create any inward change, but the temple sacrifices pointed to Christ, the ultimate sacrifice who would then provide a means for inward change. But in the midst of when David is writing this, this is, this is amazing, right? This is interesting. And 17, verse 17, kind of confirms this, right? Because we see that God is not pleased with sacrifices, But the sacrifice that he is pleased with is the sacrifice of a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And this brokenness is, it isn't just feeling sorry. It isn't just feeling ashamed. It isn't regretting the consequences of your sin. Notice that all of these things are kind of self-focused, right? They're they're about, oh, what happened to me and about what other people think about me. That's not brokenness. Everybody feels that kind of shame, that kind of guilt when you've been caught, that kind of regret when now you've got to deal with the consequences of the decisions that you've made. That's not brokenness. But brokenness is a complete crushing, a complete collapse of our ego, of our pride, of our will. When we're broken, there is no defending. There is no rationalizing, no minimizing, no justifying of sin. There is only full acceptance and realization of how we've taken God's love, how we've taken his patience, how we've taken his mercy, his sacrifice, his goodness, his faithfulness, his protection, his blessings, his peace, and his comfort, how we've taken all of those things for granted and decided instead to do what we wanted to do. So my question for all of us today is are we broken by our sin? Not just sorry, not just embarrassed, not just ashamed, and not just kind of an intellectual academic exercise that Uh, that acknowledges, right, that, well, yes, I've sinned because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But truly, are we broken by our sins? Look, I know that in Christ we're forgiven. I know that in Christ there therefore now is no condemnation for our sins. Glory to God for that. And that's for sins past, present, and future. But being forgiven of our sins is a separate issue from being broken by our sins. I actually think that in the sharing of the gospel, we have kind of created this problem to a certain degree because we talk so much about the initial brokenness that brings us into Christ that brings us to him asking for forgiveness, but then we don't talk about remaining in a posture of prayerfully asking for forgiveness and repenting. 
And some people may argue that once a person has been saved, they don't have to continue to ask God for forgiveness. And my response to that is, not only is that arrogant, but that is presumptuous. And I believe that that sets us on a path to unrepentant hearts. Being broken does two things. First, it makes sure that we don't lose sight of who God is. And we don't lose sight of who we are in light of who God is. And secondly, hmm, get this. It makes us more willing to extend grace and mercy and compassion to others because we realize just how much grace Mercy and compassion God is extending to us again every day, every hour, every minute, every second. So we're going to start, or we're going to end where we began. As we close out, I want you to listen to the words of this song and then I'll come back with some closing comments. I want you to reflect on yourself only. Not on your spouse, not on your children, not on your parents, not on your siblings, not on your neighbors, not on your boss, not on your co-workers, not the president, not anybody else, but yourself. As Mike plays this song as we close out. for the need 
Heavenly Father, forgive us. Forgive us not re- for not responding to you like we should. Forgive us, God, for not being broken by the sin for which your son was broken on the cross. Forgive us, God, for treating lightly the responsibility to represent you well in this earth. Let it never be said that because of how we live, those who don't know you blaspheme your name, create in us a clean heart and renew the right spirit in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Family, I pray that uh, you were encouraged by this word and challenged and broken, but also that you would leave here reflecting on that even in the midst of the brokenness, that Christ puts us back together, that we don't have to stay broken, right? And that's, that's the good news of the gospel, right? That while sin is heavy on us for having transgressed against God's law, the joy and the response to what he has done for us and his forgiveness becomes even greater. A songwriter said that there is more grace in God than there is sin in me. Praise God for that. I pray that you will carry these words with you through your week, that you would be reminded of it. Understand that this is not a one-time thing, but this is an as-we-journey thing that we ask God to create in us a clean heart, that he would renew a right spirit in us, that we ask for forgiveness from our sin. Church families, one last thing I want to make sure that everybody is aware of. 
Uh, as much as we've enjoyed being able to come together and God has blessed us with really good weather and good opportunities to do this, next Sunday, our plans are to be worshiping back inside of the building. So if you haven't done so already, please check out Pastor's video in which he lays out all of the necessary social distancing and guidelines and practices that the church has put in place and will be following to facilitate our in-person meeting. Always keeping an eye towards wanting to be in compliance with what uh, the guidelines and regulations are and keeping one another safe. Amen. You all have a blessed rest of the day and rest of the week and have a safe holiday. Amen. You've been listening to a broadcast of Solid Word Bible Church located at 4374 West 52nd Street, Indianapolis, Indiana. And if you made the decision to give your life to Christ, would you please share it with us so we can rejoice with you and also pray for you. Again, thank you for joining us and may God continue to keep you until next time.